Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to Part 13 of Discovering the Old Testament. I want to take a moment and thank those of you who have expressed your support for this podcast series and to briefly remind you that this podcast is made possible in part by the donations of our listeners. You can make a donation on our website, Lafkos Press, L-A-F-K-O-S Press dot com. In this installment, we will talk about the story of Joseph, which begins in chapter 37 of Genesis and continues through the end of the book in chapter 50. Joseph was one of the sons of Jacob. He was sold into Egypt by his brothers. Just to quickly review the tale, Joseph is the son of Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife. Although he is the next to youngest of all his brothers, this makes him not only daddy's favorite, but the one poised to inherit the family fortune. This would not endear him to his brothers. Besides this, Joseph is a dreamer who not only has dreams that pretty clearly point to his eventual ascendance over his brothers, he has the chutzpah to relate these dreams to his brothers. The young Joseph comes across as a bit arrogant, or at least dangerously naive. One almost feels some sympathy for his brothers. What seems to finally push the issue over the edge is when Jacob gives Joseph a fine garment, a coat of some kind, the Hebrew kethoneth uh, pasim, is a bit unclear to our modern scholarship, but whether you want to call it a coat with stripes, or a decorated robe with long sleeves, as some scholars do, or default to amazing technicolor dream coat, the gift was clearly a very nice set of threads. Considering that at this point Jacob and his family are still living the life of small cattle pastoral nomads, the gift is even more extravagant, almost profligate, since even the finest clothing won't look much different from cheap stuff after a few weeks in the desert. One day, Joseph's father sends him out to check on his brothers who are in the field. Naturally, he's wearing his nifty coat. The brothers decide they've had enough of him and get the bright idea that the way to put Joseph in his place is to kill him and throw him into a pit. Reuben, the oldest, manages to scale that back, and Judah suggests that they merely sell him into slavery and fake his death to cover his disappearance. They do this. They tear up Joseph's coat, smear it with goat blood, and send word to Jacob that his favorite son was now lining the belly of some wild beast. Jacob, naturally, is heartbroken by the news. Meanwhile, the brothers sell Joseph to a band of Ishmaelites. This creates a problem for the patriarchal chronology, because Ishmael, uh, the progenitor of the Ishmaelites, is only two generations back, and yet we have a nation of Ishmaelites who buy Joseph from his brothers. That's an awfully short time to go from a family to a tribe, as this clearly implies. It's also not entirely clear how the transaction works. The text refers to Midianites pulling him out of the pit where he was held, but the Ishmaelites actually buying him. 
There is a school of thought that explains these and similar discrepancies by proposing that the families of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons refer to historical antecedents who were not immediately succeeding one another. Instead, they propose that we are talking about different families or persons separated by much larger periods of time. This could very well be true. Remember that the Bible's larger objective is to explore the big questions of humanity and the divine as related to Israel's failure as a chosen people. History is just a tool to that end, and is thus not bound by the constraints of the historian. Back to our story. Joseph ends up in the house of Potiphar, the captain of the king's guard. Joseph suddenly shows a much improved set of people skills, and through his excellence and favor with God, becomes the overseer. Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph and tries unsuccessfully to seduce him, but successfully gets him in trouble with his boss and he's thrown into prison. Eventually, Joseph's ability to interpret dreams becomes his ticket out of prison and he winds up in Pharaoh's court, rising through the ranks until he becomes the equivalent of prime minister. His signal achievement is helping Egypt prepare for and navigate an otherwise devastating drought and famine. That same famine extends well beyond the borders of Egypt to the surrounding area, including the land of Canaan where Joseph's family lives. In order to survive, the family goes to Egypt seeking food. This leads to a series of meetings between Joseph and his brothers, who don't recognize him at first. Gradually all is revealed, reconciliation follows, and Jacob is joyfully reunited with the son he thought was lost. Not incidentally, the whole clan relocates to Egypt after getting a sweet deal with respect to where they live and what they do, thanks to Joseph's influence. That's what the story says, more or less. But what is it all about? One question that's worth considering is the disposition of the text. As might be expected, the history of scholarship on the Joseph story has sought to identify sources, as we have seen elsewhere in Genesis. But while some hints of source materials do show up, they are not, in my view, conclusive. Besides, the story does hang together quite well as a literary whole. There is clearly some outside artistic influence in play, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but the consensus on this story is that it is a unified literary whole, some scholars going so far as to call it a novella within Genesis. In other words, it is not a patchwork wrapped around an agenda. It is something much more unified and purposeful. But what is that purpose? At the most basic level, the Joseph story is necessary in order to set up the story of the Exodus. Before the Israelites are led to freedom out of Egypt, they have to get themselves into Egypt in the first place. But it seems like an awfully long story just to set up that event, even one as momentous as the Exodus. But since the Exodus was the formative event of Israelite history, it raises questions of just what kind of nation ought to form out of that event. One question that the Old Testament returns to again and again is that of monarchy. There is a lot of time spent on the question of whether living under a human king is appropriate for Israel. 
If God really is the leader of Israel, just what is the human king supposed to be doing anyway? I find it interesting that Israel is so preoccupied with this question, since, so far as I know, there is very little, if any, discussion on whether or not to have a king in any of the surrounding nations of the ancient Near East. Apparently they were just fine with it, at least their kings were. The Joseph novella includes both a family story and a political story, but where is the debate on kingship? Probably the most explicit example is the question, implied early on, about whether it was appropriate for one brother to rule over the rest of the family. Even Jacob is a little taken aback by this, but unlike his sons, he mulls over the question privately. Even though God clearly has a hand in Joseph's ascension to power, and it has the effect of rescuing the family of Jacob, it creates a distance between Joseph and his brothers. They don't even recognize him until he reveals himself. Joseph has to come down off his throne before reconciliation becomes possible. Joseph's story also draws heavily on the theme we've seen elsewhere in Genesis, which is the theme of the younger son obtaining the rank and privilege instead of, and sometimes at the expense of, an older sibling. The traditional rules of inheritance notwithstanding, some interpreters see it as anticipating the rise of David, the youngest of Jesse's sons, to the throne of Israel. But in addition to that, this story might also give some explanation for the later power of Joseph's descendants. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, whose progeny became very numerous. In fact, much later, when the Israelite kingdom was divided in two, there was Judah and Benjamin in the south, and all the other tribes in the north. But because Ephraim in particular was such a large and powerful tribe, the North Kingdom was often called simply Ephraim. Scholars look at the story of Joseph and see traces of Israelite wisdom literature, or an antecedent to it. One of the functions of this kind of writing is what we might call success literature, how to succeed in life. The book of Proverbs is a good example of this, as is the book of Ecclesiastes. Joseph certainly makes all the right moves once he lands in Egypt, even if things don't always go his way. While there is definitely some of the success genre recognized by both Jewish and Christian traditions, I think it is more of an incidental feature. A bigger issue is the one that we keep seeing over and over in Genesis and the patriarchal stories, and that is the theme of survival, who survives and why. Remember that when Genesis was undergoing its final redaction, it was in the context of literally rebuilding Israel from the ashes of exile. Understanding how and why their progenitors succeeded against all odds was of fundamental importance. Other traditions have their interpretations of Joseph. Christianity, not surprisingly, sees in Joseph a prefiguring of Jesus. Like Joseph, Jesus is betrayed by his own people, yet he both saves them and rises to great power. 
There's not much surprise here. When your mind is keyed to a particular idea, everything is equidistant from that idea. Christianity's primary interest in the Old Testament, at least in its early phases, was as a source of prophetic traces of Jesus as the Messiah and the attendant gospel of salvation. Islam also has a high regard for Joseph, which it sees as a model of piety and chastity, but also as a good breadwinner, an astute administrator, and an example of charity. Because this narrative's purpose is to put the Israelites in Egypt, it's only fair to ask what Egyptian connections exist, if any. There are some literary connections. For example, Potiphar's wife and her vengeance on Joseph for his refusal to her is sometimes compared with the theme of the loose woman that we find in places like the book of Proverbs. But it really does not fit the typology very well. A much better fit is the theme of the scorned woman, which is not found elsewhere in the Old Testament, but does have examples from ancient Egyptian literature. Another literary theme also found in Egyptian literature is that of the royal courtier who is disgraced but regains his position of authority. Still another is the wise man motif in which the kingdom faces a crisis. The king consults a wise figure who gives the king advice on how to overcome the problem. The king follows that advice and the kingdom is saved. All of these themes appear in the story of Joseph. We also see little details about life in Egypt, psychological insights, and other quite literary flourishes that distinguish this narrative from the much terser tales that come before. While not an Egyptian source, perhaps the most remarkable parallel comes from an inscription found carved into a statue in the city of Alalak in modern-day Syria. The inscription concerns one King Idrimi, who reigned about 1400 BCE. The inscription tells the story of how the king quarreled with his brothers and then escaped to a foreign land where he stayed in exile for many years. During that time he received a series of oracles. Finally he assembled an army, returned, retook his city, and forgave his brothers. The story is not an exact match, but there are quite a few striking similarities. But could a good Semitic kid from the back country really make good in the Egyptian royal court? Ancient Egypt was nothing if not ethnocentric. They made no secret of their disdain for non-Egyptians. It's probably not much of a stretch to say that they considered most foreigners barely capable of walking upright. However, there was one period in Egyptian history, a time of domestic weakness and disunity, called the Second Intermediate Period, around 1700 to 1800 BCE. At this time, the northern part of Egypt was overrun and ruled by a collection of Semitic peoples known as the Hyksos. This word translates as foreign rulers, or words to that effect. They were apparently a mix of ethnicities, but with a large Canaanite component. Early theories proposed a military invasion, since they brought a number of military innovations with them, but recent scholarship suggests that it was more of an influx of migrants that Egypt, weakened by internal strife and famine, could not oppose. In the past, scholars have wondered whether the unlikely story of an ethnic outsider rising to such a high position in an Egyptian court could be explained if the Hyksos were running things. 
they would have no problem with promoting a fellow West Semite to a position of power. This idea gains at least some circumstantial support from the opening of the book of Exodus, in which we read that there arose a pharaoh who knew not Joseph, which is to say he did not exhibit an attitude of inclusiveness regarding foreigners in the royal court. After a couple of centuries of Hyksos rule, native Egyptian power based in the city of Thebes managed to dislodge the Hyksos starting in 1550 BCE. This took place under the leadership of the pharaoh Amosa, who also founded the 18th dynasty, starting what historians call the New Kingdom in Egypt. Ironically, the New Kingdom not only saw greater prosperity but this prosperity created new opportunities for foreign traders, craftsmen, and artists, so that there were, in fact, as many, if not more, Western Semites in Egypt than had been there during the Hyksos period. The big difference was that they did not have positions of power. The Egyptians were back in charge, and they took every opportunity to make sure everyone else knew their place. But let's return to Joseph. The story ends with a powerful scene of reconciliation in which his brothers are flabbergasted to learn that the capricious, unpredictable courtier they have been dealing with all this time is their long-lost brother. They are understandably shamed by this revelation. Joseph, too, struggles with this problem. He shows signs of internal conflict about this amazing turn of events, and he frankly toys with them, alternately helping and threatening them. But the family is reunited, and the old scores set aside. One might see an implicit call for tribal unity here, but perhaps even more important is the idea that God will make use of even evil acts to bring about what must be done, as Joseph himself explains to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph understands that all his power and access to resources is subordinate to the integrity of his family. His brothers arrive at the same conclusion. The story also ties up the great overarching theme of Genesis, which is the ability of God to guide and influence events in order to hold up his end of his covenant with Abraham. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Music